This podcast is brought to you by JDRF Australia and Sanofi. Hello, I'm Andrew Gagan, and welcome to the T1D Tune-In. T1D used to be known as juvenile diabetes and is often regarded as a disease affecting just children, but they never grow out of it. In this series, we'll hear from adults with type 1 who are leading inspirational lives. We'll also talk to the brilliant researchers working on exciting new treatments and are striving to find a cure. You'd expect a mountain climber would be used to overcoming obstacles, but how does such an athlete tackle a diagnosis of type 1 diabetes? For our next guest, life has always been about overcoming obstacles, and apparently the bigger, the better. When Sebastian Sesseview was diagnosed with type 1, he'd already set his sights on conquering the world's tallest mountain. I, I dreamed about it my whole life. I trained for 10 years and we stayed on the summit for five minutes. That's 300 seconds. Not content with Everest, Sebastian came up with new challenges, which now include motivational speaking, encouraging others with type 1 that anything is possible. Sebastian, welcome to the T1D TuneIn podcast. Good to be here. Okay, let's start in 2001, 20 years ago. You just completed a trek in Nepal. You literally had the world at your feet. Were you that young man who felt anything was possible? Absolutely. From a very young age, I wanted to travel. I wanted to see the world. Every project that I undertook, it all... (laughs) And my parents were not always a big, big fans of that, but it always had to be big and, and, and far and, and bold and, and, you know, complex. And I, I was always very much appealed by big challenges. All right. In the following year, 2002, after completing that trek, you were preparing to climb Everest, but you were diagnosed with type 1. Tell us how you were diagnosed. Very typical. I know that a lot, if not most, of people, patients, families share a similar story. I had the symptoms that everybody is familiar with, thirst, losing weight. Now, the one advantage that I had, if I can call it an advantage, my brother was diagnosed. My little brother was diagnosed about five or six years before I was. So it's two of us in the family with type 1. And I was familiar at that point with uh, type 1 diabetes, which is a bit of a gift because typically when you're diagnosed, you know nothing about the disease and it's a big shock for the whole family. So I remember a few days before diagnostic thinking to myself, oh my God, like I know exactly what's what's going on here. And I went through that mini phase of denial where for a few days I knew I had type 1, but I waited as long as possible to go to the hospital, which was not healthy, obviously. And, um, you know, I eventually something was extremely wrong and I went to see a doctor and I was diagnosed uh, right away. So you talk about those emotions that you went through, obviously, of the initial shock, the denial. When did the acceptance come? Very quickly. 
I was a college a college student at the time, having a lot of fun, not probably eating well enough, definitely not exercising. Often people have this idea that I was gifted in sports. I was that guy who was picked last every single time for years, you know, in, in, in school. So it was tough. It was shocking. It was sad. It was dark. But I'm going to say like the first week I thought, all right, then like I have this disease. I know it's not going away. I know my lifestyle is not healthy right now. So I'm just going to make the most of it. And that was it. And I think that knowing that I did not have a choice, this absence of choice, it was a blessing because not taking care of diabetes, not accepting it, being reckless about it, I knew very well that it would lead to nothing good. So on the spot, kind of thing. I decided, you know what? I'm going to stop drinking. I'm going to start exercising. I'm going to eat properly. And that decision, and it was a conscious decision, it catapulted me into a new life, a very different life. And, and not to say that I've never had a drink uh, after, but it was just a, a much healthier way to to live my life and not only about the things that I was doing and eating the mindset the the dreams that I had the attitudes how I was going to go about it with more purpose now because I knew that now I had type 1 diabetes but I still have this dream to climb Everest so now if I do this with type 1 diabetes, it's going to mean so much more. It could potentially inspire millions of people. And that became the big driver and the ultimate fuel. Sebastian, I'm getting the sense from you that you love a challenge. You thrive on adversity. Yes, absolutely. In a good and healthy way. I get excited uh, when I encounter adversity. My, my story is not about overcoming challenges. It's about choosing challenges. And, and obviously, I didn't start with Everest. I, I didn't start with running across Canada and doing all those crazy triathlons. My first run was, was short and the first mountain was small. But when you choose adversity, when you love complexity, when you forget about the summit for a little bit and you just focus on what is it that I can learn here? So when you purposely, proactively choose challenges, choose adversity, um, you don't always win, but you always grow. And that to me is the appealing part. Uh, for example, when I did the race in the Sahara, I remember so vividly, like I, when I signed up, of course I know I'm not gonna win. I wanna do well, but I'm not gonna win. And, but I remember being so excited about, I, oh my God, I, I wonder what is it that I'm going to learn uh, with this whole thing, this race, the process before the race and what I'll digest of it after. So yeah, yeah, like choosing adversity, choosing big challenges, it's a massive part of my life, personally, professionally, in my athletic endeavors. So you mentioned big. As you said, you finally got to tackle Everest six years after you were diagnosed. Did you have any doubts? Yes. I'd lie to you if I said no. And anyone who, who tackles big challenges and tells you no, I, I never had any doubts, is lying. Of course, you need to be confident. Like, I never had any doubts 
that I was going to give up. So to me, that was very clear. I would never give up. I would always try. I would always go back at it if I if I didn't succeed because it's it's not that frequent that you reach the summit on the first attempt. So I had no doubts about my drive and my dream and my purpose and my ability to to develop. See what I said? Like not not my abilities, but my ability to develop more abilities. There was no doubts there. But you never know. Like maybe you climb and there's bad weather. Maybe you don't have what it takes. Maybe like because the mountain decides if you're going to get up there. And then I could have been diagnosed with something else or something worse or you get in an accident and there's always a possibility that the things you want don't materialize and that fear um is is fine it's normal to have a bad day i always welcomed that and i learned to dance with um, the doubts and your confidence everyone is invited at that big dance uh, when you, you you set massive goals so Sebastian, obviously scaling Everest is dangerous, even for the fittest and most experienced mountain climbers. And many have lost their lives, of course. How then mm. does someone with type 1 prepare for such a challenge? It took a lot of years, a lot of care, a lot of patience, a lot of people, a, a big team, a caring team, a lot of um, trial and errors. And obviously you want to do that safely. So from a diabetes perspective, I needed to test my equipment. I needed to test my body in altitude and learn about different insulin resistance. For example, uh, as you get higher and higher in altitude, I needed to develop contingencies and backups. And um, at the end of the day, I was fully prepared not to summit because of weather, because of my own abilities, or but the one thing I did not want, I did not want diabetes to be the cause of me not reaching the top. And 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 that was a massive driver for me. And it, it pushed me to prepare uh, so much and so well. Honestly, I remember getting to base camp feeling so at peace and very content and confident about my diabetes preparation. And that was a big win. I was on an insulin pump when I climbed Everest. I had all the hardware and the insulin and different types of insulin required to switch back to injections, even if it had to be done on day one. We had supplies hidden all over the place. We had people able to to give me a glucagon shot trained on diabetes the preparation was huge and it was a big part of the success i'd imagine you'd only want to take the very bare essentials to limit weight but clearly you had to take everything associated with a diabetes kit so so what did that amount to and and obviously insulin being a key part of that you would have been aware of the prospect that it could have frozen and also obviously exactly as, as you mentioned what happens um, to your levels as you get higher and higher at altitude yeah so the insulin um i'm glad you mentioned it is the more stressful and the more label intensive part of the strategy because insulin is okay at room temperature for about 30 days and then it needs to be refrigerated everest is a two months climb you are away from home for about three months 
Uh, there's no electricity or refrigerators at base camp. So the strategy there was to use thermos and thermometers and uh, I would put some ice in those thermos and check on temperature every 30 minutes, every hour to make sure it was at the right temperature. Now, during the climb, I also had insulin in Kathmandu in a fridge uh, that was kept uh, safe. And part of the strategy too was to, you, you don't need 100% of your supplies to be refrigerated. For example, you can leave and the first month of insulin doesn't have to be refrigerated. So the, the, the challenge is to refrigerate insulin or keep it at the right temperature for about 45 days so that if you're successful at that, then you have enough insulin, good insulin for the last half of the trip. So I remember getting to that mark and it was a big victory because all of the insulin did not need to be kept at cooler temperatures anymore. It certainly had to be protected from freezing, but it's much easier to keep insulin close to your body than to keep it at, you know, four or five uh, degrees. In terms of pump supplies, I mean, I had backups and backups and backups. Storage and transportation is kind of important because I don't care how much you have. If it's all in the same bag and that bag gets lost or stolen, then who cares how much you brought? So it was about storing all of the supplies uh, properly as well. That included test strips and blood glucose monitors. Um, just to give you a, an example, I think I left with about 10 blood glucose monitors, if not more. And I can sound like a lot, but I just like I pretty much never lost a blood glucose monitor and I forgot one in the first flight going to Nepal. And it was so frustrating. Murphy's Law kind of thing. But I needed, you know, one for myself. I needed backup. I needed teammates to have blood glucose monitors just in case. What if they lose it? I need a backup for them. So, so you see how, you know, 10 was not too much. When you start thinking about everything that could happen and how do you create systems, I mean, fail-safe systems, you know, what's the backup for your backup? What's the backup for that backup? What's that? What's the backup for the third backup, right? It's really, 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 really important when you're doing things like climbing Mount Everest, when it's a question of, of life or death, to think about all those systems, and it took years to develop. Yeah, and I'd imagine um, the extreme altitude would affect uh, glucose monitors and other equipment, such as uh, the insulin pump, but as well as, of course, the, the freezing temperatures. Absolutely. A blood glucose monitor, an insulin pump, all of those devices, they're proved to go up to 10,000 feet. Um, on Everest, that's base camp. That's where you start. You know, most of these things will function at higher altitude, but then you're not guaranteed they're going to be accurate. So that, that's why I wanted to do a lot of testing, see how they would react before Everest. So you, you get out there, you go climb a big peak, you go up to 6,000 meters and 7,000 meters, and you see how your equipment is, is reacting. And at one point, uh, for the blood glucose monitors, they just, they still, they're always going to give you a number, but that number becomes useless. It's absolutely inaccurate. You could test uh, three times in a row and, and get a six, a 13, and a 21. At some point, you have to stop relying on the blood glucose monitors. Uh, that's 2008, so I did not have a, a Dexcom device, CGM. 
and you just rely on how you feel, that's when doing your homeworks becomes really important because if you've put in enough time to learn how your body functions, what to do and not to do when you exercise, then you can safely go on autopilot at those altitudes and execute well. Sebastian, how vividly do you recall that moment when you reached the summit? Pretty vividly, but not as much, not as vivid as my memory three days later when we walked back into base camp. The summit is emotional. It's big. It's joyful. It's, it's magical. That's what I was dreaming about when I was climbing in trees when I grew up. But then once you're there, you're feeling so bad <laughs> and it hurts so much and you're so exhausted and you're at the half mark. You need to come down and most fatalities on Everest happen on the way down. So I felt so much joy when I reached the summit, but so much more work uh, was involved. Dangerous work, demanding work. The biggest effort is required from you when you're the most exhausted. So you, you kind of take it all in. You, um, you cry a little bit, you smile a little bit, you laugh a little bit, you take a picture. Summit is five minutes. And that's why getting back to base camp was, that's when I felt successful. That's when I felt, you know what, we made it. Time to go home now. I, I dreamed about it my whole life. I trained for 10 years and we stayed on the summit for five minutes. That's 300 seconds. And that's why the summit is a big symbol. It's a powerful symbol, but it's, it, it's, it's a symbol. Three days later, because when, when you climb, it takes two months because you have to go up and down many times. It's a process. You have to slowly acclimatize. But when, when you descend, you, know, you, you, you can go as quick as, as possible. And, and when we got back to base camp, oh my God, like I remember seeing the guys and the teams and everybody was cheering and that joy, that, that memory is so crisp because that was the true finish line. Of course, for many people, that would be enough, but not for you. I'm just wondering how soon you were preparing for your next challenge, which was from one extreme to the next. And I'm talking about the Sahara race of 2012, an ultra marathon. Yes, that was four years later. After Everest, so many years of your life went to one thing, one dream. All of your money, all of your vacation time, all of your evenings and weekends and yeah, everything you've got basically. So I just, I still loved climbing and, and being out there in the mountains, but I just wanted to do something different. So that's when I started to run Ironmans. Uh, I fell in love with endurance running and racing, and that kind of led to the Sahara race when I really wanted to challenge myself four years later. And there was something in me that was very attracted by, by how different it was going to be. To go from Mount Everest to running 250 kilometer loop in the Sahara, you cannot find to places in the world that are more different from one another. And I was a beginner and I knew nothing about that. And that was appealing because I knew I would learn a lot. So that was uh, yet another challenge. And then 
something else. Two years later, why not run across Canada? More than 7,000 <laughs> kilometres. Um, how long did that take? I mean, or, or another way, I guess, of, of measuring that. How many marathons did you do? So it took nine months, and that was the equivalent of running about 180 marathons. And what toll did that take on your body? <laughs> it's funny because people ask, how do you train for something like that? And there's no training for something like that. You know what I mean? It's not like you're going to train and show up ready, quote, on, you know, quote unquote, and then it's going to be easy. No, um, you don't need a lot of marathons in a row to be in a lot of pain. So I ran for nine months and I was in a lot of pain from day two. <laughs> so it takes a big toll on your body. I was fortunate, no, no major injury throughout uh, the, the whole thing. Your, your, your body just finds a way. Your body, you, you know, the structure, uh, how your body moves is not going to be perfect. There's going to be some tensions, some imperfections, but the body just settles into a pace, into a, a structure, a way of running that works. And if you respect the pace that the body can deliver. I, I firmly believe in that. We get injured as runners, not because we do too much, but it, it's the speed work. It's all the crazy things we do to get faster, which is generally fed by the ego, right? I want to go fast. I'm going to feel good if I'm fast or faster. But if you just find a pace that works for you and you respect that, then I think you can go forever. Sebastian, are these challenges more than just personal goals? What else are you trying to achieve? My purpose is simple and clear. It's been the same for years. I want people with type 1 diabetes to know and to be convinced that they can do absolutely anything they want. It requires a first step. It requires to transform your beliefs. It requires you to challenge yourself. And the challenges and the mountains it should be small at the beginning, but always be in movement. Always make the next goal just a tiny bit bigger. And then 15 years later, you, you, you turn around, you wake up, and you've accomplished some pretty big things. Yes, yeah, so you're obviously seeking to inspire and educate people, particularly those uh, with type 1 diabetes. You are now an established motivational speaker. How did you make that leap? Do you find that daunting? It kind of happened by accident. Um, I mean, years ago, I, I, I took kids up Mount Kilimanjaro. I, I brought kids to Mount Everest Base Camp the year before I went for the summit. And people took interest in that. And I started speaking. And then all of the speaking that I was doing was focused on, on diabetes, speaking to people with diabetes. That's 10 years ago, and, and, and then I, I really loved it, and I wanted to have more impact. So I transitioned to corporate speaking, keynote speaking in big meetings, uh, annual meetings, uh, sales meetings, uh, speaking about themes that are embodied by my journey, uh, which is agility, which is leadership, which is resilience, which is endurance and winning the long game. And I've got a background in business uh, and sales as well. So it was, it was, uh, it's still a lot of fun to uh, use those parallels to inspire uh, corporate teams. Do you feel as though living with diabetes is becoming easier, particularly, I guess, as technology improves? I think the short answer is yes. 
but I think if you only give the short answer, you you know, <laughs> parents of, of children with diabetes might want to throw tomatoes uh, at you. It's easier. It's not easy. It is a fact that the tools, the technology, and the drugs we have today, we have everything to be controlled properly. A hundred years ago, technology and, and medicine was the issue. A hundred years ago, there was no amount of motivation and drive that, that could have saved you. Now we have all those tools, so, and, and they keep getting better. So it's a mindset thing. It's a thing. It's a commitment. Like I committed that I'm taking care of myself. It's on, it's in my yearly goals. I write it down. I frame this stuff. It's on my desk. I'm looking at it right now. So I, I make my health and controlling my diabetes a foundational priority because if I don't achieve proper diabetes control, all of my other goals, personal, financial, my career, my athletic goals, none of that is going to be possible if my diabetes is not managed properly. So that's the foundation. And I want to live long and <laughs> have a fulfilled life and a fun life. I, I don't want to just be alive. I want to have a full life. So I want to be healthy. Sebastian, I, I have one more obvious question to ask. What's your next challenge? Oh, <laughs> well, I'm a triathlete, so Kona, you know, world Ironman World Championships, that's been a, a dream uh, for a long time. I am close, but I, I need to get a little faster to qualify. It's also about execution. I, I've had races where I was in qualifying shape, but I, I did not execute properly. So Ironman World Championships, that's a dream. And I've started to work on a new project, which would be a... Uh, cycling across Canada, but attempting a speed record. So that would be uh, less than 13 days, um, over 15 hours of, of cycling per day, two weeks uh, straight. Sounds like a walk in the park. Cycling across the park. <laughs> <laughs> Sebastian, you have a remarkable and inspirational story to tell. Thanks so much for sharing it with us. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. If you'd like to hear more from Sebastian, he'll be appearing next month at JDRF's Type 1 Summit on the 21st of March. To find out more, visit their website, jdrf.org.au. For all the latest updates on T1D Research, search JDRF Australia on Facebook or follow them on Instagram under at JDRFAUS. And keep an ear out for more episodes in our T1D TuneIn series, wherever you get your favourite podcasts. Until then, I'm Andrew Gagan. Thanks for listening. Views expressed in this podcast are broadcast for informational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice. Consult your team of healthcare professionals for health or personal advice that is right for you.